Hi, it's Dan Hare for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, singer extraordinaire Darby Mills. We'll be talking music, travels, the business of music, the ups and downs of being a career entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well about recording, touring, and much more. So stick around for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who has been there for many decades. Best known as the voice of the headpins, Darby Mills is known as the Queen of Scream with her powerful rock voice that has been heard for decades on rock music airwaves around the world. So thanks for joining me today, Darby. How are you? I'm great, Dan. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. How about you, how are you doing through the COVID thing? Are you going crazy? Are you uh, stir crazy at home or what's going on? You know, I have uh, I have been down the rabbit hole as many times, I think, as probably anyone else, but... Uh, trying to keep a good workout schedule and uh, trying not to eat too much. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm, I've been able to pull myself out every time so far. Let's hope it doesn't last too much longer, even though I'm, I'm hearing rumors that it could very well go till September of 2021 before anything that I've spent my life doing is back in yeah. the news. Wow. So I guess we just have to be prepared and be as productive as we can be during that time. So as long as you're healthy and happy, and uh, that's that's the most important thing, I guess, eh? Uh, it's very important. Most important? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I give up on most important. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I went through your brief history of uh, of how you got into music. I guess you were you were the uh, the youngest, and you were the you like to sing around the campfire, and you were the entertainer, and and uh, grew up with sort of a musical influence from from your family is that right well uh, well yeah my mom was a player but she'd quit long before she had me I was the fourth child and yeah. uh yeah, her her life was pretty much looking after children um but my dad was a, a fabulous singer and uh it was him that would sing around the campfire and definitely lit the uh lit the fire in me to appreciate the applaud that would come yeah. From the other side of the lake at the at the bonfires <laughs> around the lake, and it was just magical to think, wow, people people are applauding that. I could do that. Yeah. I'd like yeah. to do that. So that's kind of where it started. Yeah, cool. Because a lot of people like to sing and play, but then when you think, what was your break when you thought, well, I could make something of this. I could actually make make a living out of this, or I could make a job of this. What what was that moment for you? How did that come about? Um. Hmm. I was from five years old. I was a figure skater, so I was performing in arenas, if you will, uh, yeah. from a very early age. Basically, I just changed crafts but kept the same venues. Yeah. Um, uh, high school, grade 10, some friends of mine had a band, so we went over to watch them rehearse one day. They were doing Crazy on You by Heart. Heart was definitely the first, or Anne was the first singer that that caught my ear and uh, I remember singing endlessly to the Dreamboat Annie oh, album yeah. in my parents basement and yeah. anyway so the drummer was singing crazy on you and I was giggling in the corner thinking how silly it was for a boy to sing Ann <laughs> Wilson and uh, as the story goes he threw uh, the album cover at me that had the lyrics on it he said then you sing it and I did, yeah. and uh, I went and did their next gig with them, which was one show, or one song, pardon me, at a high school in 100 Mile House, I think in the middle of BC, northern. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I got up, did the one song, and I knew before I left the stage that that, that wow. was it. 
Yeah, no, it's, I'm very familiar with that. We used to nickname it 100 My Hell House. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And so so that you were up in the interior, uh, is that where you went to school? You didn't go to school in 100 Mile. That was just where the gig was? That's where the gig was. No, oh, we okay. uh, eight boys and I set off in two broken down vehicles. Then, yes, they did break down on the way there <laughs> and overheated. All the stories that you ever hear about young bands oh. uh, taking off on adventures, it all happened on that trip. Yeah. And, um, it, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it was definitely the, the day. I know the drill well. I've been through it many, many times. So then you, so you didn't really overthink it. You just kind of, it would just kind of got out of high school, got started playing and one thing led to another. You weren't sort of, you didn't have a kind of a defining moment. You just kind of thought, well, I guess I'll be a singer, right? You just got into some bands. Well, that, that, that was, that was the defining moment. Yeah. Uh, standing on stage singing Crazy on You by Heart. Yeah. I knew that when I left the stage that day that I was going to attempt to be a singer, cool. put a band together. Right after that, um, as a matter, members from the band I was singing with actually uh, came and we we rehearsed in my parents' basement for about a year. And that's when I was introduced to Janis Joplin or the Pearl album, to be exact. Yeah. And uh, the guitar player said to me, you should listen to her. You sound like her. Yeah. So um, I don't think I'm, I formed my voice around Janis. I think that the comparison was made because I had similarities. So, um, yeah, I studied that album or at least yeah. a couple of the songs on that album and have sang them basically pretty much yeah. ever since yeah, cool. but uh, yeah. yeah it's funny with janice yeah. because a lot of people they, she has that very distinct voice but it was the sort of flavor and the feel and just the coolness the cool factor of it that that is to me is more important than the the raspy sort of whiskey voice that she had uh sure <laughs> Yeah, but so you uh, then you joined Steelback. I know because uh, you know I was I've been around for many years and started playing in the late seventies around here as well. And Steelback was a really well known band, and I I remember the band you know in eighty two or three when Glenn Dooley was the singer because we were doing similar dates and similar clubs. But you were gone by then, right? They they came and saw you, and you joined them for how long were you in Steelback? In nineteen eighty, I yeah. joined uh, the Headpins in nineteen eighty. Yeah, no, a, a prior prior to Steelback, I was in a number of bands, moved away, graduated from high school, uh, moved away to Calgary, was in numerous bands, or auditioned and sang a couple dates with uh, just Mickey Mouse Jam Band and Wheeler from Calgary. And, yeah. um, but uh, how did it, oh, goodness me, so many bands. Then I was with a African-American band out of Harlem, New York, uh, that was based in Edmonton. I'm not sure why, but they were a dance band. I auditioned for them, got the gig, went out on the road, did a, did you know, a month, maybe two, uh, and ran into Steelback in Lethbridge, Alberta. They were playing the rock room and we were playing the dance room. And on my breaks, I'd go over and watch them play and eventually got invited up to jam. And uh, after a two-week gig, believe it or not, there were two weeks we played for two wow. weeks in one room. Um, <laughs> I ended up... Um, being offered the job with Steelback and uh, I moved to Victoria with them. So oh, that was cool. about a year with Steelback and then 1980, uh, end of 1980, joined the Headpins and um, yeah, spent the, nice. the next 36 years kind of yeah. with the Headpins. Well, the cool thing about playing in Lethbridge is you could say you played in LA. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, well, that's neat. And then so the, uh, the Headpins then they heard you sing and, and contacted you to join the band? Yes, they did. 
Yeah, no. it was pretty and fast. That was 1980. That was uh, yeah. well, 79, and um, yeah. I joined in the early 1980. Yeah. Yeah, and then so there was a couple things about the headpins. I mean, you guys came out and you really did kick the doors down. I mean, when Turn It Loud came out, it was it was a big deal, right? I mean, for all us musicians, I was playing the clubs at the time and, you know, it was, it was a big deal. Everybody, I didn't have female singers, so we never covered any of those songs, but they certainly were huge in the clubs and every club played them. And so that must've been an exciting time for you to, to go from playing in basically a bunch of different bands to being in this band that had some really major songs that were being played in the clubs. Um, well, when I joined them, there weren't major songs being played in the clubs. They didn't have a record. I, um, I was the singer on, on the first record and the second record and the third record. And um, uh, there's been three greatest hits released since we broke up, which is, it's like, so we, yeah. we, we put out three records and we put out, somebody put out three greatest hits, hits records. So that's, oh, wow. yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, that's gotta be a record. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, when I joined them, they were just a cover band. Well, you had replaced Denise McCann, right? Like I, I did a show because we, we were doing a show with Randy Bachman and friends around 1982 mm-hmm. or three because we had a single out and we were doing our thing. And, and I talked to Denise McCann about it and she was really upset about being basically fired from that band because she had said she had given her heart and soul to that band. She had had her own hit song before that and then basically felt like a bit of a commodity. Like they just kind of said, okay, you're, you're out. And then Darby's in. Yeah. Well, you know, I know the feeling that's happened to me with that band three times now. <laughs> <laughs> so did you ever talk to Denise? Did you ever? Uh, when, um, before the transfer had happened, we spoke a little bit in a dressing room one night. And uh, yeah, you know what? I was I was 20 years old, turning yeah. 21. Um, all I knew is that it was a wonderful opportunity. The people that I was working with, the management that I was working with, with Steelback, were all telling me, you know what, it's never going to be amount to anything because Headpins was basically the side project for two members from Chilliwack while Chilliwack was going through their nasty um, situation because Shelley Siegel from Mushroom Records had passed away suddenly. Yeah. So all of a sudden their contracts were all up in the air. They had, um, it was, pardon my language, but it was a shit show for them. And that's when yeah. Solid Gold Records stepped in. They signed Chilliwack and came out to see Chilliwack the way I see it anyway. Saw Brian and Ab in the clubs with me singing and offered the headpins a deal. Yeah. Well, I so, can see that because I remember you guys were doing Breaking Down. I remember that, that it was actually on the news. I remember watching the news show that they were doing this thing on this band that was coming up and you were doing the song Breaking Down, I think is the song I remember. Yeah. That well, that's that's a song that they, um, Brian had written prior. Uh, I, I don't know when he wrote it, but they were doing it in the clubs in that first year when Matt Fournette was the drummer for the band, actually. Yeah. And um but it had not been recorded yet, right? So it okay. got recorded when we went into the studio to, re- to record uh, the Turn It Loud album. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me ask you about this then, because there, the, there was that contest, remember, to name the headpins? Like, you, I don't know where the, the headpins name came from. And then they were going to rename the band. So they had this big contest and people were sending in names for this. Yes. What was that all about? Was that Brian's idea? Was that? No, it was definitely not Brian's idea. It was the record company's idea. They didn't oh. like the name, the headpins, which was Brian's name. And to this date, I've heard three or four different uh, explanations of the name. So I don't know really where it came from at all. Yeah. <laughs> I can. I can assume 
that's it. But it, I, that's all it would be is assuming. Um, so for publicity's sake, uh, get the radio stations involved, which was Seafox at the time. Yeah. Um, let's do a contest, rename the, the, the band, and uh, Brian uh, agreed to it. We did the contest. I was so graciously given the task of going through all the names. So we went through all the names. I picked the top 10. It got down to the top three. And then the final name was chosen, which was um, uh, Wild Child. So it was announced. It went out on the radio and the record company said, great, we'll start the artwork for the new name. And Brian said, no, you won't. We're not changing the name. (laughs) (laughs) So strangely enough, you say, you know, Randy Gable and you played with him and perhaps Dougie Rasmussen um, at the time. Uh, the Feldman agency was working with new bands and putting new bands together. And this new band had come in with a female singer and the Feldman agency agent that was working with them at the time said, well, we've got this great new name called wild child. Let's call you wild child. So oddly enough, 40 years later, I am working with the keyboard player and guitar player from the band wild child, which was the name I chose. That's so great. Well, thanks for sharing that with me. Cause I always wondered about that because they had this big contest, lots of hype, lots of radio hits. And then they just, in the end, didn't change the name and everyone was kind of scratching their head going, well, that's kind of weird. And then it was like a publicity stunt, right. To just keep the same name. <laughs> kind of, sort of. <laughs> yeah. So that's funny. So you recorded the album, then you went in and did turn it loud. And that was at little mountain. Is that where you recorded that? All three albums were done at little mountain. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then who, who was the producer and the, and the people who looked after the recording of it? Uh, well, Dave Slagter, uh, he goes under a, a different name now. Perhaps that was his stage name. Yeah. But he did all three Headpin albums. Um, yeah. uh, Brian McLeod was was the final word. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming he was co-producer. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ab sat behind the board a lot. Um, and uh, Pat Glover was the engineer for all three albums. Okay, I know Pat. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, basically, the and myself uh, sat in the studio for uh, hours and hours and hours and yeah. hours with the occasional, uh, we had a couple different drummers come in, but I think in the end, McLeod ended up playing over anything they did with you know one or two exceptions anyway brian was a pretty picky guy he liked things the way he liked things so um yeah so basically it was the you know five of us in there banging heads and and uh doing whatever else it took i had heard that that brian played most of the drums on the turn it loud album which a lot of people didn't either ask or know but some, mm-hmm. somebody had said that to me. One of the inside guys said that Brian played most of the drums on the Turn It Loud album. Is that right? On on all three albums. On three, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I appreciate as well that. as all the keyboards. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. He, he won a Juno, as a matter of fact, for his keyboard playing. Yeah. Not his guitar playing, but for his <laughs> keyboard playing. That's funny. Yeah. Pretty talented yeah. guy, though. So, um, so I wanted to ask, I have to ask you about the video for uh, don't it make you feel like the kitchen video i'm sure you've been asked about it before but it always it was always a head scratcher to me because i always thought it was such an odd video like to have for a concept video for the kitchen and the chefs and all that how how did that come about what what was your thought on that 
If he was still alive, you could ask him. Doug Bennett put that together. Oh, did he? Okay. And uh, he did the second video with us as well, where I flew around on a crane and bashed into cars and yeah. blew up cars. And and uh, that was just his wacky, that was his wacky brain doing doing its thing. So, yeah. yeah, unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. And strangely enough, his drummer, as he died, as he passed away, unfortunately, was Chris. And who is, Chris is playing with me now. That's so, right. yeah. Yeah. How full circle can you get, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that kind of explains it if if uh, Doug Bennett was involved in it, because I, w- I always thought it was kind of quirky, and I didn't think it, I thought if you're going to have a song about dancing, you'd think it would be in a club or in a dance setting or something else, and it was just so so quirky i just thought and so saying that doug bennett had a hand in it it kind of explains everything so i appreciate that i didn't know that so (laughs) so then you did uh, you did the albums you had i don't know how many hit songs did you have like a half a dozen you had um don't make you feel and turn it loud and one more time and feel my body all those songs great songs yeah we had we had lots we, we, yeah. we had lots, lots that are forgotten about when you think of the headpins. Oh, they had, you know, don't make feel a dance. And some people even yeah. forget, turn it loud. And yet you hear the scream and go, oh, I remember that yeah. tune. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and each each album got progressively, uh, I wouldn't say, well, yeah, le- less successful, but music changed. Everything changed. We were being forced to come up with stuff that was more radio sensitive um and so that would get played on radio right when we came out we were something new something different and people were willing radio programmers were willing to uh you know to to experiment with us but by the second record and definitely the third we were we were chasing the tail of the uh, you know program directors and in yeah. turn the record company execs that were just trying to have another hit right so yeah uh it's a it's a game it's a gamble it's you know, yeah it's, and that's fairly typical too i mean you look at Doucette's albums and stuff too right i mean you you do a, an album like mama let them play and then they want the second one to be like i mean it's it's really tough right and even writing one hit song is a challenge most people never achieve and then to yes. have five or ten i mean that that's amazing right yeah for sure so so that's so then you toured with some big bands right like you you got to do some tour in in europe i saw some of the video from that and then you you got to open for some great bands and do a lot of your own shows and too so what was your what was your favorite about the the shows that you did and the touring you did um well probably the the grandest experience there were there 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 were lots Uh, you know i've been lucky um touring europe with white snake was was um you know, a, a mark on the wall, uh, David yeah. Coverdale, Cozy Powell, John Sykes, Neil Murray, and uh, John Lord. You yeah. know, two two of those men are are no longer with us at this time. Um, yeah. So I was very, very lucky in hearing of their passing. There's like, wow, man, I had I was on stage with those guys. I had a chance to meet them and and uh, snack yeah. lunch food with them. You know, <laughs> um, that was cool. This easy top tour, even though they weren't the friendliest guys it was still pretty fantastic to go across the country um it was easy top kiss uh you know i performed with gene simmons just a year ago um yeah. that's been a wonderful connection for many many years yeah, cool so um yeah the, the you know i won't go on yeah. with the list but it's, oh, it's yeah. no, a it's fabulous cool. list yeah 
Well, you know, you, you said like you're you're barely 20 years old, you get into a band, you record some tunes, next thing you know, you're in this uh, sort of alternate reality, right? Playing with all these big bands and looking around going, holy guacamole, this is pretty well, cool. Yeah, you're looking around <laughs> as you're passing by in a speeding car on the Autobahn and yeah. it's just, uh, next thing you know, it's over, it's done. <laughs> what, yeah. what happened? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. doing it again uh, 25 years later would have been a wonderful thing, which we, I mean, we kind of did. We ended up uh, with the my, the last version of the headpins I was in anyway. We got to do uh, a wonderful batch of shows and yeah. And experience oh, the grandeur of it all once again. And then, uh, yeah, COVID. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you about that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. We're talking to Darby Mills about the experiences and the early days and, uh, and what she's up to these days. So we'll be right back. Check out songs from today's artists and other Canadian music makers of the 60s through the 80s on Dusty Discs Radio. Each Tuesday and Thursday, it's nothing but Canadian oldies. You'll hear songs you know, others you've forgotten, and maybe a tune or two you've never heard. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and make it a favorite. Let's get back to our special guest. All right, we're back with Darby Mills talking about her life and her experiences in the headpins and then after that. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about Brian McLeod. Obviously, he he left this earth uh, some many years ago now and, and made a big impact when he was here. What was your experience? Was it good with him or bad with him? Did he treat you well? Was it... Uh, was it strictly business? I mean, the, the, the music business is harsh, right? And, and, and I know a lot of people that I've talked to said, like, it's, it's like being a professional sports person, right? It's like, what have you done for me lately? And if you're not doing that, then it's over and that sort of thing. So what was your experience with Brian? Was he, was he hard to deal with or, or good to deal with? Uh, uh, Brian, you know, let me preface with saying that Brian was a fabulous, uh, fabulously talented individual with many, many, many skills. And um, someone once described it to me, someone who was in the field said, was it kind of like boot camp? And it's like, you know what, that's probably the best explanation I could give you. (laughs) uh, The experience of working for the better part of five years under the wing of Brian McLeod. Um, uh, I would not be the singer I am today had I not worked in the studio with him as a performer. I think I, I think I held my own as a performer. I, I kind of knew where I was coming from, uh, but the opportunity to work with uh, with his caliber player when the opportunity came in 1980. Um, as I mentioned, even though everybody was telling me they're going to drop you, nobody's going to touch you after that because you'll be a traitor to your band. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I guess I'll I'll just quit singing then. And um, lo and behold, it ended up, you know, being 40 years out of of my life uh, part of that. So even though I did uh, get let go in 1985, uh, off to my own career, and then rejoining back with the remaining members um, in 1992. I think we got back together. Yeah. Um, I, you know, you live and learn, and, and uh, you take what um, I felt as his uh, his experience, his uh, his wealth of knowledge, and everything that he's done was passed on. Sometimes you had to pull it out of him. Sometimes it was stuffed <laughs> in places. <laughs> yeah. Well, I 
I always wondered about that because, you know, you were the singer in the headpins. You had all that great success and then it, it, it came apart and then he went on to do, he did the Chrissy Steele thing and he did Steele McLeod and prisoner. Like he was, he was with, um, um, Dave Steele and stuff and, and did tried to do a bunch of other things, but never got back to the success that the headpins had. And then people thought he was going to join Chill or Chilliwack was going to sort of reinvent itself and go again. And, and I think he kind of, from my experience, just looking on the outside, kind of bounced around a little bit and tried to put some projects together and they didn't quite work out the same way as the headpins had. It was magic. That was, it, it was magic. Yeah. It came together, um, you know, at the expense of some like Denise, but of course I heard reasons why it happened with Denise. There were reasons why it happened with me. Um, there were reasons why it didn't happen with others. There, you know what, if you don't roll the dice, if you don't give it a, give it a chance, it's not going to work. Yeah. So, um, you know, whatever yeah. you, you just got to do what you got to do. But there was something about that combination because Brian tried several other combinations that didn't work quite the same. So I think that that speaks well of what your contribution was, right? You, uh, you know, in my, in my egos of egos, I really do. I really do think and hope that my contribution to the band was worthy of, uh, of something. Yeah. Well, if you're keeping score, I think you win on that account because he never had the same kind of album success after that, even though he tried, right? Uh, uh, sure. I'm not going to argue for him. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, that's right. You know, well, no, uh, I just was making that as had, an observer. You know, I'm just a... I've, I have a, um, uh, you know, I have some information long, long since forgotten, but he was doing many things. Like you said, he was uh, hopping all over the place and he was starting to connect down in Los Angeles from what I understand. So he really didn't need a band. He yeah. had uh, all kinds of other things going on. So, yeah. uh, but unfortunately um, you need your health. Yeah, exactly. So. That, that trumps everything. Right. Well, so, yeah. so then, you know, you, you said you got fired from the band, I guess you, there was some conflict in the band. And then I guess people from the outside are looking at that going, well, okay, well, Darby's been on all these radio stations. She's had all these hit songs. She must be independently wealthy and multimillionaire. She's just going to retire and sort of live it out. Right. And that, that's really not the reality when you're a Canadian artist and you have a, a certain modicum of success, but you know, you're not, sort of a multimillionaire that's going to drive around in your Bentley and, and retire. Well, absolutely not. That's the songwriter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you get any writing credits? I did. On any I, I have out of, yeah. out of the, well, I think there was eight songs on the first album and then 10 and 10. And I think I co-wrote a third of, of uh, all three albums or approximately a third. Now, on the other hand, you know, um, it was a new skill to me, although the, I wrote more on the first album than I did on the second two. Uh, but it was also Brian's source of income as well, right? And so yeah. having to share that, um, he was tempered with it. And, and uh, yeah, it was one of, one of the reasons when we got back together for the reunion in 1998 and we toured across the country as a reunion, um, the contracts were back on the table and and I just went, you know, it's been 30 years. I would kind of like to walk into this contract a little better than the contract I walked into when I was 20. Yeah. And um, it turned out that it was a worse contract. And mm. my ability to write songs, there was no guarantee. And I was, um, you know, basically told, y you'll get what you get. And yeah. it's like, so I'm stuck 
in this role as your singer with no opportunity to make the money that the, you know the, the more money is made from from songs being uh, published and uh, and bought yeah. than singing them obviously yeah sure so uh, that was that was really disheartening that um, that it came to that and yeah. and so I turned down I turned down the opportunity to be the singer for Brian McLeod's Headpins and that's when Chrissy uh, came into the picture right but okay. yeah no you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, like the old saying, you know, it's the suits that wreck the music business, right? I mean, you're talking managers, lawyers, you're talking points on songs, and, and then you've got tension inside the band, and you're touring, and all these things kind of coalesce into all of a sudden you're out, right? You're, you're out of the band, and, and they're moving on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the way the inside of the music business goes. I guess people think it's kind of rosy from the outside, but when you look at the, the difficulties on the inside of it, and... And then, of course, you're young and, you, and you're offered a deal. I mean, reading like books like John Fogarty's book and stuff. I mean, th those people were completely taken advantage of, just just completely. The, the deals they signed, they shake their head thinking. I don't about think it. there's an artist that's been signed that can't give you a woe would me story. I think it's just <laughs> the, it, it's the nature of the beast. That's that's why it's called the music business. It's not the music yeah. joy <laughs> right it's the music business and there Fair are suits and there are people that make decisions on your behalf and tell you uh you know how it's going to be and you either stand your own um uh, a short story when i had my first 20 page contracts handed to me the <clears throat> manager agent uh, that handed it to me said, you need a lawyer. I don't have a lawyer. Well, use mine. So I went to his lawyer, which is not allowed, really. Yeah. Uh, that lawyer was representing me and him. Um, read right. the contract. He said, well, here's my advice. Sign it or don't. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds kind of odd. Well, it was like, did you, you don't sign it, you don't get the deal. Yeah. You're 21, when you're 20, 21 years old, what are you going to do? Sign yeah. the deal. Yeah. So, you know, that was that was the information yeah. I got. And that's, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. That's, that's un unfortunately, as you said, that's a fairly typical story because yes. they've got the big carrot, they're dangling a big carrot in front of you and saying, you just sign here, we'll look after everything. And then looking back on it, you kind of... So then when you left the Headpins, then you put together a band, you played at Expo, and then you ended up in LA, right? You, you got a... a a deal like a private a separate deal a solo artist deal and you went down to the to la to record uh no i went down to la to write okay and um got a few songs written with some uh, established house artists down there and then they sent me over to london england where i recorded at um two studios and pardon me uh, ridge farm studio which was which was fabulous built out of old boats uh, the lumber from old boats all the all the um, oh, cool. timber was twisted and turned a fabulous studio way out in the, in the boonies and then um came home went back uh and finished up at eel pie which is pete townsend's studio oh. Mm -hmm. on the Thames and so that was fantastic and got yeah. to see Pete just about every day and oh, cool. came home from them we had six songs recorded it was time to come home for a little break and try to come up with some more material and and in that time I was informed that by Eel Pie they called saying we can't get in touch with your record company can you because you've got, you know, a month booked here. What's going on? 
So my then manager and I at the time called down to L.A. where my deal was. And yes, Tom had been fired. There was a new A&R president, um, head of A&R, they were called. So we flew down there to have a meeting with him. And that's where the Tiffany story comes in. He, um, He had the choice of breaking me as a solo artist or breaking this 16 year old who he really thought was something. So I'll get back to you. So I flew home as an unsigned artist. (laughs) So like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's not untypical either, right? You're just like, you're, you can be on top of the world one day and the next day you're, you're yesterday's news and it's have a nice life. Yeah. I'll see you later. Yeah. That was like, they, they put about a hundred, 120, maybe American dollars out on what was, what was done so far and then threw it out, threw it out. So that was the never look back. Nope. That, 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 was, that never came out. Yeah, okay. It's six tracks that are buried in some vault somewhere oh. 30 years ago, uh, over in England. And you have no access to that. I, I came home with what was supposed to be the new format at the time called an F1. Yeah. And, uh, so I have two wonderful F1 copies that, uh, the machines don't exist anymore, or at least the three that I've managed to find don't exist anymore. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so you can't get a hold of it. You can't retrieve that stuff. I've got some cassette copies that have uh, been played, you know, endlessly. And I don't even think they were the final mixes. So no, I don't have them. That's okay. You know, at the same thing, same, um, the record company didn't want me to be the singer from the headpins. They wanted me to be Jody Watley, who was the, the top artist, female artist of the day. And yeah. uh, they wanted a disco album. So the tracks that I did over there were not classically headpin uh, genre. It was, it was very different and had subtleties to it. And uh, I worked with uh, Tony Levin played bass on it. Uh, conga yeah. player from Santana, uh, uh, Tina Turner's guitar player, Phil. Oh, I can't remember. I never remember his last name. Uh, the producer was actually Tina Turner's producer from the private dancer album, Greg Walsh. Wow. I mean, they spent huge money. Yeah. Well, no, I, you know, I didn't know that. It's, it's So I'm getting some new information here. I mean, obviously you'd want to get to those original tracks if you could, right? I mean, that was a pretty substantial effort that, like you said, they spent a lot of money on. I, I, I thought that that would be available to you. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to hear that. We need to leave it here, but check out the next episode for the second half of my chat with Darby Mills. Catch you then. Mm-hmm.